You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com, and when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention Uncommentary, uh, on some books you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check him out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come, come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check him out. A lot of people who are not in full-time ministry often wonder if their um, contribution to society means anything in the sense of uh, how does it relate to worship? How does it relate to a daily uh, living in in light of God's kingdom, in light of God's glory, in light of God's grace? Uh, so that's always been an interesting intersection for those of us who've pastored, uh, how to encourage people who aren't in ministry as pastors or uh, missionaries or you know Christian writers or whatever, uh, how does your work matter? Uh, how do you live in a way that your uh, your accounting or your phone bank uh, operating or something else like that uh, works to the glory of God? So my conversation today is with a guy who's written a book about this very thing. It's called Work and Worship. And uh, I think it's an interesting intersection. It's one that needs to be talked about more because the average person who follows Jesus isn't in full-time Christian ministry, quote unquote, or doesn't serve as an international missionary or any of those other kinds of positions that we usually think of as somewhat extra. And I'm using air quotes with that, but they go to work every day and they provide for their families or they provide for themselves. Uh, and they're generous with their money, and how does this relate to a life of worship, and is it distinct, or is it integrated, and that's uh, what we're going to be talking about today. My guest today on Uncommentary has written a book, uh, I guess technically co-written a book, uh, on work, work and worship, reconnecting our labor and liturgy, and I think this is just a hugely important subject. Matthew Kamick is a PhD from Free University. He gave me permission to say that rather than trying to say V-R-I-J-E uh, and, and then <laughs> university like like it's a typo or something on the back of your book. <laughs> but it's Free University from of Amsterdam uh, and Fuller, Associate Dean for Fuller, Texas in Houston, a scholar in residence at the Max Dupree Center for Christian Leadership, Assistant Professor of Christian Ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. Matthew Kamick, welcome to Uncommentary. Hey, it's great to be here, Marty. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So um, I'm going to guess that even if you are a household name, nobody knows how to pronounce it. So um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about who Matt Kamick is. Sure. So the last name, Kamick, is is Dutch. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the a Dutch Reformed uh, immigrant community, uh, just north of Seattle. And, um, Wait, that's uh, Canada. We, got, we call that Canada, don't we? 
just north of Seattle. Yeah, about an hour, <laughs> about an hour from the border. Wow. Uh, we, we, we're still technically Americans. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, so I grew up in Seattle, you know, listening to Nirvana and snowboarding and all that good stuff out wow. there. And went to Princeton Seminary and uh, served as a, as a young pastoral intern alongside uh, Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian no Church. No kidding. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things about Tim planting that church there in New York, you know, really the focus is uh, faith and work mm-hmm. um, for Redeemer Presbyterian Church because they they really decided that, you know, if they're going to be doing ministry in New York City, um, really the reason people move to New York is to work and to make a name for themselves, mm-hmm. whatever career they've chosen. And so, you know, if it if the gospel doesn't have anything to say about your 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 workplace, the the place where you are, eighty hours a week in mm-hmm. New York, then the church really doesn't have much to say. So you know, early on for me, that was uh, you know, that was that was a big experience for me. So this whole, what is the connection between faith and work and and labor and liturgy? You know, it started started earlier on for me, but uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, I'm Dutch, and that's why my last name is the way it is. <laughs> Vanna, I'd like to buy a consonant. Nope, they're all used up. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so this is—I mean, this is a hugely interesting topic to me. Um, but there's a lot of books that kind of approach this subject from the um, "Hey, you know, be a missionary where you are, always be sharing the gospel where you work," and those kind. Of, and, and that's, of course, important. And I'm not downplaying that at all. But this seems to be a little different than that. This seems to be more uh, work as an expression of your worship, not just an opportunity for you to evangelize your coworker. Am I on the right? Am I on the right path there? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, it's a, it's a common it, either evangelism or ethics. Mm. So some Christians think about the workplace as a place for evangelism. Others think of it as a place for ethics. So like a good Christian worker doesn't lie, cheat or steal. A good Christian worker is really nice. Um, but, you know, both of those models don't really see the work itself as having a deep value to God or God's mission. Um, and uh, they don't really see it as a space for worship. Mm-hmm. So they tend to think of worship as something that happens on Sunday morning. Um, and then they have the rest of their life. And, and really do experience for many people, you know, this, this, this chasm, this, this divide between I, I have these things that I do on Sunday morning, you know, pray, sing, listen to a sermon. And then I have these things that I do on a Monday morning where I go to meetings and I do emails and I wipe tables and, you know, clean up diapers and, um, and they really experience sort of a, a gnawing chasm between these two aspects of their life. And, you know, we say in the book that we are living our lives in pieces and separated from each other, the the pieces begin to die. Mm. Um, our work begins to suffer, but, you know, our, our worship suffers too, because it's, it's so separated from the rest of our life. So yeah, that's, that's what we're getting after in the book. So I want to press that just a little bit because I want to, I want to even draw more clarity on that particular spot. If I can, we're, we're not talking about, 
stopping what you're doing on the assembly line, like five times, like like Muslims would do, uh, Orthodox Muslims or committed Muslims would stop five times a day, spread their prayer mat, face Mecca, and try to stop whatever they're doing and on the side of the road or whatever in their living room and pray. So you're not talking about you know stopping the assembly line and things are piling up for your coworker while you <laughs> you know kneel down and face across and spend five or ten minutes in prayer while you're on the job. You're talking about something that's a little more integrated, right? That's absolutely right. Yes. Yes. So um, in, in understanding that the work itself uh, brings delight mm. um, to God, that, um, you know, as Romans 12, one would say, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship or, you know, that we are called to love God, not simply with our, our hearts, but with our strength mm. and with our minds and, um, God created us to work and God takes delight in that work. So it, it, it is worshipful. Um, yeah, to, to, um, to care for patients, to build solid bridges, um, to, to, um, to, uh, sell good quality products. Um, these sort of basic ordinary acts, um, bring pleasure to God. And well, if somebody else, bri- if somebody else builds a good quality bridge, that's going to cause me to worship when I go over it. I can tell you that. Uh, you say that of course, there's, you know, if, if it's a rickety one, you, you may be turned to prayer. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> so you say that there is a type of worship that forms workers and there's a type of worship that fails workers. Unpack that a little bit. Sure. Um, so, you know, recently, uh, I, I can remember going to a worship service in which a young and energetic worship leader said, um, to open the service, he said, guys, I know you've all had busy weeks. You know, you've got a lot going on. You're probably thinking about work and all the projects that are coming up for you next week. Um, but for the next hour, we are just going to focus on God. <laughs> And, you know, he, he, he had the best of intentions, but that is a terrible way to start worship mm. because what you have just said is this time of worship is a, a spiritual time that is totally disconnected from the rest of your life. And whatever your thoughts are or experiences of work, they are not welcome here. Wow. Um, you, you are not to bring these projects, these heartbreaks, these longings about your career to God, um, because God doesn't want to hear those things. Um, and, and that's what we're talking about. We, in a, there are a number of ways in which Sunday morning worship can fail workers, and that's just one of them. Mm. And we talk about a number of other ones as well, but it is, it's so dangerous and devastating to communicate to workers that um, Sunday morning is a spiritual escape from the world. Um, It's a spiritual escape from their daily lives rather than Sunday morning is this time where you actually take your life and you lay it down before God. So a, a simple change for this worship leader, I might suggest. Yeah. He could have, he could have said, guys, you've had big weeks You've had, you've got a lot going on. Some of you are coming exhausted, tired. Some of you are stressed. You're thinking about what's coming up next week. And I just want to offer you for this next hour to bring those things to God, to lay those things down 
and to ask him to transform and take those things up into his work. You know, if he had opened the service that way, Mm -hmm. then suddenly Sunday morning is gathering the people of God and all of their work and their questions and bringing it to God's work and um, laying it down. Um, And then you're building a bridge between their, their weekly life and Sunday morning. Uh, but so often we don't do that. And, yeah. you know, I work for a seminary and for a long time, seminaries have failed to train worship leaders and pastors to build those bridges between Sunday morning and Monday morning. Well, it's, it's just not doing a good job. Yeah. It's, I think it's even worse than that because we've viewed, uh, we have traditionally viewed Sunday morning in America anyway, as an escape from everything. It's an escape from our neighbors. It's an escape from, you know, people we don't like. It's escape from the, you know, it's an escape from all the bad out there. Um, and of course there's a sense in which that is true, or at least kind of technically true. The people of God are coming together in witness to the resurrection of Christ. And so there is a sense in which it's detached in that way. But I think we've pushed it farther. It's almost like we viewed going to church as like the emergency room by which <laughs> we get ready to go out into the battlefield again on Sunday, on Monday. And it's not been a holistic view of the gospel. It's been this really separated or truncated view of how the gospel affects us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's devastating to the, to the power of worship and to what's going on throughout the week. Yeah. No good. No good. No bueno. No bueno. So, uh, say that in Dutch. Say no good in Dutch. Can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Need so hoot. Need so hoot. <laughs> more consonants, more consonants. Um, so uh, you have a really intriguing um, chapter called uh, On the Prophet. So you, you have, um, you work your way through the Old Testament and the New, um, talking about how work is related to worship in the, the Psalms and the prophets and the, the law and things like that. Uh, one one is really intriguing to me, and that is the uh, the prophets decrying the destruction of work and worship. Because I've read the prophets a good amount, and I've never come at it from quite that angle. Um, it's always, you know, typically, especially if you're a pastor, you always go into the Psalms and you or into the prophets, and you come out figuring out which of the sins you're supposed to preach about this week. Um, but you're saying that there's there's uh, indications or insights in there about judgment i'm assuming kind of judgment or at least pronouncements against uh how work has been corrupted in some way or been separated from worship talk about that some yeah absolutely well so for the people of israel their their understanding of holiness was um it was spiritual it was political and it was economic so holiness was walking in the ways of the lord in every area of life not just in the temple but in the fields and in the marketplace and in the palace. Um, so if Israel was holy, um, all of these things are working together um, in the economy of God faithfully. Mm. And so sin is, um, is the perversion and the division of those things from God. And so what we see in the prophets, you know, is, is really interesting connections between the temple and the marketplace and um so you know for example you have this really interesting discussion where um the people of god are worshiping they're they're doing all these sacrifices they're they're saying all the right prayers they're singing all the right songs and they they feel no spiritual connection to god 
and they feel like God is not responding to their prayers. God's not responding to their sacrifices and songs. And they're saying, what's going on? What? We're doing worship right. And the prophet responds, well, um, you may be singing all the right songs uh, and doing all the right fasts, but then you go out into the marketplace and you behave like there is no God. Mm. You, you know, you crush the poor and you cheat and you, you lie and your scales are dishonest. And so you have created this division between the temple and the marketplace. Wow. And, and that is destroying your worship. And so basically like God is, God doesn't hear your songs or and he's not responding to your prayers because they're not connected to a holy and whole life of both worship and work. Um, likewise, the, the reverse is also true. So if they start um, worshiping idols, right? If they start worshiping other gods, um, if, if their temple worship is perverted, um, their fields and their marketplace begin to fall apart as well. Mm. And, and what the prophets are doing is continually calling them back to calling Israel back to a whole life of holiness, not just holiness in one area of their life. And so they understand these things as being interconnected. And I see that as being deeply relevant for the church today, um, because we, we do try to segment off our lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we wonder why our prayer life is dying when we are, you know, behaving the way we do in the marketplace with just like constant rush and greed and, you know, seeking promotions and seeking glory and, and all of these things. And we wonder why our spiritual life is running dry when we're behaving this light, this way in our, in our working lives. Mm. So this is Marty Duran. I'm talking to uh, Dr. Matt Kamink um, about labor and liturgy, work and worship. And we'll be right back after this. Well, you've probably heard me mention already the new Uncommentary Book Club, and I wanted to give you a shorter version of that. I think my original running time was like five minutes. So here's the short of it. Go to uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club. Uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club. No hyphens or underscores in book club. And you'll find all the information that you know uh, that you need in full array. So the short of it is this. Become a patron at patreon.com slash uncommentary at $4 a month. And that qualifies you to join the book club. That's in partnership with hearts and minds books up in Pennsylvania, my buddy Byron. So I want to encourage you to do that. You'll get a new book every month. It's you're, uh, you're buying from them. He and I will select these books based on what's coming out and what we believe will be of interest to this audience. Uh, I will post it in Patreon beforehand. So you'll know what to expect. Um, and so you won't go buy extra copies of it. Uh, but this has the, I think this has the, um, potential to be really encouraging. Uh, you guys can hook up via zoom and have, have your own book discussions, all that kind of thing. So, um, uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club for four bucks a month as a patron. You can be, uh, you can join and I encourage you to, uh, to take a look and invite your friends. So is there a, uh, is there a connection or any kind of correlation between, uh, how work and worship was viewed in the Old Testament versus how, uh, it might have been viewed in the early church or the, you know, the ancient years of Christianity? 
Yeah. So th- this was really surprising to us in the research. We, we weren't expecting it. But, you know, all through the Old Testament, it's so clear, you know, Israelite farmers are bringing their work into worship constantly, mm. right? They're bringing their, their fruit, their vegetables, their grain, they're bringing their calves, they're, they're bringing all this stuff and they're, they're offering it up to God in an act of worship. And they're saying all these prayers about, you know, God blessing their fields. And so, yeah, you have these in the Old Testament, these really robust offering services. And I, I have to admit that we were expecting the early church to walk away from that mm. and to turn worship into this spiritual thing that was divided, you know, off of their daily work. Um, but once we got into the um, into the research, we found this is not at all the case. That in the in the first three centuries of the church, you have these really beautiful practices of early Christians in Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and Antioch, where you know on a Sunday morning they would be bringing um, fish and bread and clothing and crafts and whatever they were making they would bring these things to worship and sometimes they would give these crafts um, to the deacons at the door. Oh, wow. And sometimes, and sometimes they would bring them and, and pile them up, you know, on, and, um, and you would just have uh, these ceremonies of offering. And even some of the very earliest liturgies have special prayers just for workers where the, the pastor or the priest would bless the worker and their and their house and their fields um and and offer and offer their work to god um in some of those very earliest uh liturgies and the early church they thought it was it was so important to stand by the things you were offering to god um and it was so important, particularly that these be pure offerings. And so they had really interesting rules about who could offer. So um, it's really fascinating in the documentation that um, dishonest lawyers were not permitted to offer in the church. Wow. <laughs> um, people who there's, there's a number of um, innkeepers who watered their wine, who like watered down the wine. Uh, were also not allowed to offer in the church. Wow. Um, and then there were specific careers, like if you were you know, a gladiator or a, a prostitute or a magician, or if you were a, a soldier sometimes, um, you were not allowed to offer. And you would have to go through a period of confession and the, the church would you know, help you uh, get into a, a new career. And only then would you be allowed to offer in worship because it was a holy act that is really your, interesting to bring your work to god you know i can remember god delights yeah i can remember having conversations with pastors about if a church member won the lottery would they uh you know would they take the tither and offering off of the money that the church member had won in the lottery and <clears throat> my first thought was well the chances are they're not even going to bring any of it that's why they're playing the lottery to begin <laughs> with um but my response was well, I don't, you know, would we take the money from somebody who made it selling, you know, white lightning out of their basement or would we take it from somebody who was a pimp or would we take it? I mean, you know, it, the root of that money coming in was problematic for me. 
uh, it wasn't problematic for a lot of guys, but it was, it mm-hmm. was problematic for me. And it was for that very, that very thing. It, it represented more than just some money coming into the coffers. There was a heart and a purpose behind it. Uh, that's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. So here, here's a, here's kind of geeky historical thing for you. Um, the reason one of these early churches would turn this down is they said, um, we are going to feed, um, widows with this money. Um, and we're going to, we're going to take this bread and we're going to give it to widows and orphans. And we don't want to give them, you know, poisoned Mm -hmm. offerings because what's going to happen is those widows are going to turn around and they are going to, they're going to offer uh, a portion of it back to the church. And then you are including widows in your, in your sin. They're like connected to it. So they would see it as poisoning the whole community and poisoning the worship. If you accept, you know, bad work, but it was really because they thought, you know, the, the offering was such an important part of the church's, you know, who worship to God that, that your work really does matter. And, um, and so it needs to be holy because, um, it's, it's part of your worship to God. Wow. So let's jump over to one more thing. Um, you mentioned, uh, in the book, and this is of interest to me as well, and that is the Lord's table, um, that coming to, uh, I, I usually say the Lord's supper, other people use communion and whatnot, but, um, coming to the Lord's table, coming to communion, um, is receiving something that's distinctive. It's receiving a bread that is distinctive than the bread that we work for during the week. Um, that it, it, it fills us in a way that we're emptied during the week. Um, expound on that a little bit because that is again something that a, a connection, uh, that hasn't been made very much, if at all, in my, in my past. Yeah. So me personally, and I would assume this is true for many, you know, Protestants and evangelicals. Um, when we, when we experience communion, we often think of it as this spirit, very spiritual time, very personal time between, you know, me and Jesus Mm -hmm. in which we remember that Jesus died for our sins. Um, but we don't really ponder too much of, the consequences of that meal for our public lives or our working lives. Mm. And in that chapter, I'm really trying to, to make this argument that the Lord's table, the communion, it, it is so connected to our working lives in the world. And I, and I try and, and help people understand about 10 different connections between those things. But I, I wanted to share just a little story that, that I think really helps make the connection. Um, in the fifth century, Pope Gregory is celebrating communion, and um, a, a woman comes forward to take communion, and he breaks the bread and he gives it to her, and he says, You know, the body of Christ broken for you. And the woman starts laughing. And of course, this is shocking for everyone involved. You know, why is this woman laughing during communion? You know, this is the the Pope, right? You don't, you don't laugh during communion. And afterwards, they ask her, you know, why were you laughing? And she says, I looked down and I recognized when he said, you know, this is the body of Christ broken for you. I recognized that the bread he was holding 
was the bread that I made in my kitchen with my own hands. You know, it was my kitchen. It was my oven. It was my little piece of bread that I brought and offered. Um, And here it is. The Pope is saying, this is the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And right, and right there, she was, she was reminded of the scandalous truth of what's going on in communion. There we are reminded that in our ordinary work, you know, in her ordinary kitchen, um, as a baker, um, she is participating in the extraordinary work of God. Wow. That, that our ordinary stuff, um, is, is a part of the mission of God. That's so good. And, and communion, um, in its, it it is elemental, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just spiritual. It really does involve, grain and grapes and bread and wine and picking and crushing and Mm -hmm. mixing and baking. Um, it is, it is a work-based, um, act of worship. Um, and there, you know, the God of the universe has somehow decided to include our work in what he's doing in the world. He doesn't have to do that, but he's, he's taking up these, these very elemental things that we do week in and week out um, and say, this is my body broken for you. And that's like that woman understood that and she she burst out laughing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and to me, that's, that's it right there that, that we need to recover that uh, understanding that, um, the Lord's table is, it has consequences for our working life. That's you fantastic. know, the meal, the meal with Jesus, mm-hmm. it, it has consequences for how we work in the world. The book is Work and Worship, Reconnecting Our Labor and Liturgy by Matthew Kamick and Corey Wilson. Don't want to leave Corey off of there. Um, available everywhere now, I'm pretty sure. And uh, you're on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? Oh, it's um, Matthew Kamick. Uh, so it's very easy to spell. Sure. Yeah. Matthew, we have <laughs> Matthew with two T's K A E M I N G K. So Nicely Matt, done. thanks for being with me. Y'all check out this book and, uh, be sure and share this. This, is, this would actually be a good podcast to use for a Bible study discussion. If you guys have never done that before, this would be a great one for that purpose. Until next time, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Matt, thanks for being with me. Hey, thanks a lot. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.